In this episode, I chat with Dr. Danny Goyle, founder of the Precision OS Virtual Reality Surgical Education Software. We talk about the software itself, the research, and how the idea came to be, but also generally about entrepreneurship, solving problems in medicine, and how to progress through the nonlinear journey of an entrepreneur and innovator. It's a great episode, and if you like this, check out the Sicker Than Your Average Health podcast by my friend and colleague, Josh Britton, for more info on Dr. Goyle's technology and other health innovations. Enjoy. Hey there, med school keeners. MD Consultants is the best company out there for application review and interview prep. You'll work with a customized consultant to get the best chance at admission to one of your top schools. Visit mdconsultants.ca and enter code ORTHOPOD15 for 15% off packages for pre-med students. Visit mdconsultants.ca, code orthopod15, and get into the med school of your choice. Welcome to this episode of Casting. Here we have Dr. Danny Goyle. Dr. Goyle is a Canadian upper extremity surgeon. So he's part of the team behind developing Precision OS, which is a VR technology primarily used right now for surgical training. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ajay. It's wonderful to be here. Do you mind describing in your own words the Precision OS technology? So we are a surgical simulation software platform. And what we allow uh, and permit our end users to do is in a VR headset, which is also referred to as a head mount display, you engage with a virtual OR in a fully digital environment, which allows you to pick up instruments, engage with them authentically, and then do things to augment your education, such as removing bones from the body, you know, rotating things around, getting a deeper sense of the anatomy, and then quantifying your performance in the virtual space. Can we talk about one of the example modules that you have and and what it would look like for, say, me as a user to run through it? Sure. So I'll use our hip fracture module as an example. So when you log in, uh, just like you would an email or any other website that requires credentials, it automatically records who you are. And then you start the procedure by doing what you normally would in a hip fracture, which is, you know, evaluating your patient, you would do a reduction of the fracture and you can use intraoperative uh, fluoro or the C-arm and it gives you real-time images and you can move the C-arm around to get the ideal view and you can move the limb around to get the ideal fracture reduction. Once you have the fracture reduction, you proceed through the steps in both a guided or an unguided manner. The guided manner tells you exactly where to put the guide pin, whereas the unguided version allows you to make decisions on your own as to where the starting point would be, what direction and orientation you would put the uh, guide wire in the femur. And simultaneously, you would also do the same on the femoral neck and head. And so not to get too detailed on the anatomical side of things, but the whole concept is to allow you as a decision maker to exercise that decision-making capacity in a way that doesn't harm any patient. Once you're completing the procedure or completed the procedure, it gives you metrics on your performance, which we have dubbed the precision score, which is a combination of several different performance metrics. When you're doing the procedure, would that involve, say, like using a scalpel to cut through tissue, hammering in the nail, or using the drill? So it goes through the steps, the procedure. And one of the things that is limited right now in VR, which I anticipated to in evolve is uh, the soft tissue feel. 
So we provide haptics in the actual modules where when you're drilling, it makes the sound of a drill and you do get vibrations in your controllers, also known as kinesthetic feedback. So during the whole procedure, that's the feedback you get, but it allows you to progress from beginning to end and make errors along the way, should you choose to do that. What would be the, the optimal demographic user for this technology? So I think like any technology, there is a technology adoption curve. So there will be early adopters. And what we've noticed is that medical students and junior residents are one captive audience, as well as surgeons later in their career, perhaps 10, 12 years, who don't necessarily need to benefit from a cadaveric experience. They want to understand the procedure, the flow, as well as have an authentic experience with the actual medical device uh, that they're going to potentially use on a patient. One of the guests I had before you, we were discussing the idea that a surgeon would be able to do a procedure that they'd never done before, say, if you're in a low resource setting, or I guess if you wanted to uh, learn a new procedure without having to go to a course and fly down to a different city. Um, it seems like this would be a really really good way for companies like Arthrex or other companies to kind of market their new technology and materials. Yeah. So the one thing it does do, it helps facilitates the connection between a learner and an educator in a way that's just not available to us right now. So a virtual environment where you have multiple people in the same space, in the same three-dimensional space, watching an expert go through a procedure. And that, that first person education is extremely powerful. And we do know from from the literature that that's a different method of learning and has a different impact on a learner than say watching a video or watching someone else perform through video a particular procedure. Now, if it's all right with you, you know, I'd like to get a bit deeper into the actual process of the innovation. So, um, you know, I've read a few articles about this, but uh, how did you first come up with this idea and what were your steps after you came up with the idea to make it into a reality? So the initial idea was to create a mobile app for family doctors. As you know, in Canada, the family doctors refer their patients to specialists. And what I realized when I audited my own practice was there were several patients that I was seeing that were likely best managed uh, non-operatively by a skilled practitioner, not necessarily a specialist. And, you know, this was a frustrating uh, exercise for a lot of patients because they tend to really wait to see a specialist. And so that was where the idea began. However, when I met Rob and Colin, our two, my two co-founders, and experienced virtual reality back in 2016, I felt that this was a technology that really could change the landscape of how we not only uh, teach physicians, but also perhaps educate patients and provide other concepts like physiotherapy, which is you know, a robust area with VR right now. So, you know, as a surgeon, one of the things that I was really passionate about is education. And so this is where we did a deep dive back in 2017 and really made several prototypes and exposed those prototypes to a lot of different stakeholders and really identified the need back then. Are we, were we solving a problem? And the answer was yes. Would that have been a stage where you found investors? So not initially, I think we had, we had to establish proof of concept and what that entailed was just spending time on our own, you know, going through the process, listening to our customer or getting what's called voice of customer to saying, you know, what are the problems that you're facing on a daily basis? How are you currently dealing with them? And is this a solution to that problem? So I think the key to all this really is to identify 
is there truly a problem that we can resolve with this technology and then create a solution to that problem as opposed to create a solution and then try to find a problem to make it fit into. And so who were your initial customers or the people who helped you identify the problem? So it was, uh, it was across the board. It was from medical students, junior and senior residents. Uh, we interviewed fellows, uh, staff surgeons in both early and late stages of their career, as well as the medical device companies. Now, 2017 is four years from now, and it seems like most of the media exposure and growth the company has occurred between now and then. Can you just talk about what's happened uh, in the past four years for your company? Yeah, so we've We've had significant growth since then, but I would say that a lot of our growth that we're seeing is actually, you know, coming in the near four to five years. And the reason I say that is because we're still on the cutting edge of this technology. There's so much more potential that we're going to be seeing and observing with how it's being used, how it's being implemented uh, across both institutions as well as medical device companies. Once you had the prototypes ready, what were your next moves? Was it research? Was it marketing? Was it getting investments? Yeah, so very good question. So our next steps were to, you know, find and talk to our potential customers. And in this case, it was our first customer was Zimmer Biomet. And they had already been doing some work in this space. And so when we approached them with our solution, you know, it was certainly solving a problem for them. And simultaneously, we had some conversations with some residency programs early on. And I think the technology at that point was still maturing and we had to create our footprint by creating robust technology that we felt was the right pathway to proceed down, which is build an authentic experience that actually drove the agenda of high quality education. And that's how we slowly progressed from creating the software, getting feedback, iterating, creating more software, iterating, getting feedback until we're where we are today. And so during that process, there wasn't, you know, innovation and, you know, journeys for startups are never a linearity. It's always a very up and down, there's ebbs and flows, and there's micro pivots that you make throughout the journey based on feedback you get, thought process, and, you know, being a clinician, you have to be very adept at kind of recognizing where you want to go fast and where you want to go slow. And so that was the journey of the innovation from where we are today. And it was very nonlinear. It's hard to answer your question to say, what exactly did you do and when did you do it? Because it was very jagged. Me as a medical student, I would have no idea how to navigate that process. Um, Did you have any sort of training or experience that made you able to progress through successfully? Yeah, it's a very good question, Ajay. And I would say that I've always been open to feedback. And that's just one thing that I think uh, entrepreneurs must be willing to do. Don't be so fixated on the idea, but be open to feedback that you receive, good or bad. And one thing that we really championed from the beginning, and I, I remember having this conversation with Rob and Colin, is we always wanted to go after the things that people disliked about what they were seeing in our technology. And so we always checked our ego at the door, got feedback, and always went after, okay, we know that you may like this technology. There's a wow factor with it, but what don't you like? Because those are things we can adjust and modify. You start getting down the path of really adopting and accelerating your thought and your business based on vanity metrics, which is where people tell you how great it is. That's only a sub-segment of the population, which we know in technology adoption are the early adopters. 
But where we wanted to target our audience and our feedback was from the people that said, this isn't going to work. You know, this is things that are missing because that's the stuff that we can change. The hip fracture module was probably a no-brainer in a sense. It's one of the basic elements of any orthopedic surgeon's training. But I noticed that some of the other ones that you had were either a reverse or a total shoulder replacement. Um, how did you decide what modules to incorporate? So a lot of it was uh, in collaboration with our medical device partners and what was important for them and what's challenging for them to teach. And so some of the feedback we had was and continues to be is, you know, this module is too advanced for a junior learner, which I think, you know, I would, I would challenge that comment to say, why do we put people in boxes and say, you know, you're only a medical student or you're only an R1. This is beyond your level of thinking. My way of thinking is we should encourage people to think beyond their years as medical students or residents. Obviously you have to have a fundamental basis of how you would technically perform a procedure such as drilling, sawing, suturing. So that could become automated when you're actually in the operating room. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think we should encourage people to think beyond their year in training and certainly encourage them to become more confident, more inquisitive uh, with particular procedures. So somewhat of a long-winded answer to your question is we work in collaboration with medical device partners say, this is important. In addition, we get feedback from our institutional partners say, this is something that's missing from our program. So we try to do a combination of both. I mean, I'm curious, why would someone be resistant to a module thinking that it's too advanced? You know, this, it's an excellent question. And so it's just that whole thing of, you know, we expect a certain level of proficiency from a PGY1, PGY2, PGY3. And this is kind of the apprenticeship model that we are so ingrained in which is, you know, you take a stepwise approach to progression in the operating room. But what if there was a tool that allowed you to not only do our current apprenticeship model, but also push your thinking in a way that you couldn't do in the real world? And so those are some of the reasons I think that people think this way is that we should not necessarily put them in this box, but we expect a certain level of proficiency from an R1 to an R5. And I think that's mostly geared around what are we willing to allow them to do in the operating room based on their skill level. And that's obviously the moral and ethical challenges that you're only allowed to do so much in the operating room as a PGY one, two, three, et cetera. I'll share um, an anecdote with you that I just uh, became aware of. So a medical student uh, and I had a conversation recently who has access to our software and he had performed our hip fracture module 30 times on his own time, which was news to me. So when I, when I started pressing him a little bit on his understanding of the procedure, his three-dimensional understanding of what had to be done, I was really impressed by how much he actually knew. And certainly VR didn't contribute to all that. I think what it allowed him to do is to push his thinking. And we talk about this idea in residency about how you should think around your cases and build your knowledge around cases. And it felt that he was able to do that by practicing in VR and then with inquisition going and looking up resources that helped him get a more comprehensive understanding of this problem. And, and he's, only a he's only a medical student. I, would, I, I shouldn't say only, that's not the <laughs> correct way to phrase that, but mm -hmm. he, is, he is currently a medical student aspiring to be an orthopedic surgeon. So in my view, he is already ahead of perhaps many of his peers in how he's thinking about a particular problem. 
Hey, are you looking to boost your MCAT scores? Let me tell you about Prep 101. Prep 101 takes a comprehensive approach to MCAT prep. They teach you all the science, help you master the challenging passage-based format, and they hone your critical thinking and reasoning skills. When you nail these three areas, knowledge, skills, and strategies, you'll get that score. They offer 138 hours of live instruction, more than any other company. They also devote more time to guided practice and have more live instruction hours on that tricky cars section. All of this adds up to a prep course that offers more of everything you need to get top scores. So make sure you check out prep101.com casting and use discount code 350castingpod for $350 off their course. Again, if you're trying to get into school this fall, check out prep101.com casting and use discount code 350castingpod. You mentioned that you think most of your company's growth is going to be in the next four or five years. Do you have any goals or visions for what you might accomplish in that time period? So our goal as a company is really to allow surgeons anywhere in the world to not only learn using our software, to help propel their thinking using the software, but importantly, also to connect with experts who may not be available for a myriad of reasons, whether they're unable to travel, whether they may be retired or close to retired, or they just have such a busy clinical practice that they have so much to teach, but they just are unable to get away for a number of reasons. So I think part of the, you know, the overall vision that we have as a company is to be able to connect learners and educators, regardless of where they are in the world. And the hardware, which is, you know, the price point is extremely affordable now, you know, buying a hardware uh, or a headset for $299 is, is not usually a big ask, but being able to connect people from anywhere in the world so they can actually interact and have an authentic, but completely virtual experience in a virtual OR is sort of our long-term vision. So what you're describing uh, with this kind of virtual distributed OR, is that different from the module-based system that you have right now? No, it's actually part of the same module. So if you go into our shoulder module, for example, you can do an individual experience. You can go through the entire procedure on your own, both either with assist on or assist off. And that same module, if you said I wanted to engage with a mentor, you can ask a surgeon who also has a headset to join you in that virtual space, regardless of their geographical location. And so they go actually hand in hand. So that, that piece of which we refer to as remote collaboration allows people to connect the same module uh, at the same time. They'd virtually be right beside you as an avatar, digital avatar right beside you watching you perform that shoulder procedure. I think the, the growth potential there is huge because a company like ViewMedi, probably the leader in terms of virtual teaching right now, I think what you guys are offering would be much more immersive and better experience. Uh, and I noticed that you'd done a little bit of research that actually supported that finding. Do you mind kind of summarizing quickly the, the findings of your research and what, uh, if any, research that you're hoping to do in the future? Yeah, definitely. Before I answer that question, I'll, answer, I'll just comment on your ViewMedi comment. So I think that VR, just to be clear, doesn't necessarily replace anything at this point. It's one of many tools that we're going to use to help drive proficiency as, as surgeons. Whether you're still going to need to read, people will still watch videos, which I think is important. People will still engage in opportunities to watch other surgeons operate. 
uh, both virtually as we can do and in real life. And then people will attend, attend courses. This is one of many tools that we'll use to drive proficiency and expertise. Your comment on research. Uh, with respect to research, we have performed two randomized control trials in collaboration with the Canadian Shoulder Elbow Society. And they were the assessors of the senior residents who were randomized to either do virtual reality education or traditional education in each study. One was reading a surgical technique paper written by a well-known shoulder surgeon. And the second was watching a video also by a well-known shoulder surgeon. Both studies had both groups of residents then go to the cadaver lab where they were assessed by members of the Canadian Shoulder Elbow Society on technical skill, safety. They had to ask several questions or answer questions during the procedure and then were evaluated. And both studies, as you can imagine, showed a difference, a significant difference in both safety, clinical errors or surgical errors, uh, less so in the VR group and then greater in the non-VR group. So certainly sure. there was you know, quite a difference between the two groups in that learning modality uh, at these senior years. Would you, would you want to do any research uh, for kind of live operative cases or, or is that cadaver research sufficient? I think we still, that is probably one area that we need to continue to push towards. Uh, there's challenges, of course, both morally and ethically. And how do you conduct such research where you have a resident or fellow train in a virtual or non-virtual space and then assess the impact of that on a patient specifically and on the outcomes. So that's an area that we're continuing to dive into, but it's, uh, it is uh, feathered with some challenges. I want to kind of shift gears into based on your journey and the experiences you have, I wanted to know if you had any advice for young orthopedic surgeons or medical students who are interested in uh, pursuing innovation. What I would say to people who are pursuing innovation, firstly, I should be clear that my intention was never to be a startup entrepreneur. I never had that thought um, when I started orthopedics. The pursuit I did have, though, was to solve problems and, you know, use what I felt to be intrinsic motivation to do what I do. And so I was already innovating within my practice, you know, setting up these rapid access clinics helping to triage patients through different mechanisms, you know, using different systems, computer-based systems to help me navigate my current sort of ecosystem of uh, healthcare. So what, I, what advice I would give is that everybody in healthcare is best positioned to solve the problems that we see on a daily basis. So pay attention to the things that annoy you within your practice, and then ask yourself, does this problem bother me enough that I'd be willing to try to solve it? And What's important there is to ask yourself, is this intrinsically motivated? Am I motivated to do this because there's something deep inside? There's a passion inside me that I know that I can sustain the momentum required to innovate and become an entrepreneur? Or is there something else driving me to solve this problem? And I would always say that the intrinsic motivation to solve a problem will always be much more sustainable. So if there's a problem you're passionate about solving, then I think that entrepreneurship is on your roadmap. Uh, because it's it's a long journey. It's it's um, littered with emotion and roller coasters. And uh, so I think that from my perspective, that would be the advice I would give. It, it's funny because the problem that annoyed you is is different from the one that you guys ended up solving. But I think you guys solved a pretty pretty big problem, or at least took the first step at solving it. Um, actually, I would say I, actually I would say the problem is directly linked to 
the original intention, which was, you know, getting patients access to qualified uh, physicians. So it really boils down to education. And what we ended up delivering on is just a different form of education. So as opposed to, you know, giving somebody uh, an app, which they had to punch in, you know, data points to help triage patients, we actually took a step further and said, we're gonna train people. And then again, related to orthopedic surgery, we're gonna train people to the best of their ability to provide the best patient care. So I would say that they're actually linked. Uh, it doesn't seem like that superficially, but when you deep dive a little bit deeper into it, yeah. the intention is identical. I've asked different forms of this question uh, throughout, but I'm just curious, you know, in terms of the immediate next steps, you know, what do you, what do you see on the horizon for your company? You know, I, th I think there's several, I think it's uh, number one, continue to work with our institutional partners. And a lot of this is educating about what we're doing and how we're doing it. So I, I think that for us, you know, the next, several years will continue to be to innovate and push the technology and understand the impact that it could have with ongoing research, ongoing implementation, and then importantly, realizing the potential of technology as we continue to increase the computing power. So there, there's several things on the horizon for VR. Mm -hmm. And you know, part of, of course, COVID really helped push this to people's forefront, uh, at least in their mind, even though it was still something they considered in the past, I think that was part of the, uh, the journey here is that COVID actually helped accelerate this. So the next steps for us, uh, Jay, are several. First is to work with our institutional partners to help implement and introduce our technology at many levels within their educational structure. We want to continue to grow as a company, not only from a personnel perspective, but also pushing the computational efforts uh, within VR. Uh, and thirdly, you know, we're already seeing significant interest uh, with organizations as well as specialties outside of orthopedics. You know, the future is really untold right now, but we're seeing a lot of interest in many different areas that we have to explore. Fantastic. My last question is, do you do, you do any sort of meditation or mindfulness practice? Uh, it's a very good question. And I do every morning, actually. So every morning when I go to the gym, after I'm finished the gym, I usually spend about five minutes or so doing some breathing exercises and trying to focus on nothing else. And I find that that uh, allows me to focus throughout the rest of the day on both the known and the unknown that I may experience. Before we sign off, do you have any other, anything else to say or any other messages for the audience? You know, so thank you, Ajay, for this opportunity. And one of the things I will conclude with in saying is, you know, we're in a very, very noble profession. And I think as physicians, uh, we have multiple roles to play. Uh, everything from as a community surgeon, which is what I was, uh, to someone in academics, uh, research, education, as well as innovation, all fall under the same umbrella as our responsibility to some extent in varying forms uh, as clinicians. And I think as long as we keep the patient in the center of our thoughts, I think that we'll continue to innovate, we'll continue to provide the best research and certainly the best education.